Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin at verse 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. Let's hear what the Spirit has to say to his church this morning. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realised that he'd seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father, as we hear your word this morning, might your spirit uh, take it and bear it deep in our hearts that we might know the truth that you've spoken to us and rejoice in it. Help us, we pray, therefore, in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, if you're here at church, we looked at Psalm 44, and uh, the question I asked was, are we disappointed enough as Christians? Are we disappointed enough as Christians? Uh, As we read the Bible, we read about this mighty God, this powerful God who spoke and the world came to be, this mighty God whose son came into the world, who was able to walk on water, calm the waves, feed 5,000 people just with a handful of loaves and some fish, who was able to raise the dead, give sight to the blind. Uh, This same son rose to heaven and poured his spirit on his people. And as we read in the early chapters of Acts, the disciples, the apostles were able to do extraordinary things, rather like Jesus. They were able to raise the dead, heal the sick. And we're told that the gospel was going to the ends of the earth and that all nations would bow before him. And then we look around. That's what we've heard with our ears. But we look around with our eyes and at least in our own country... Life is nothing like that spectacular, is it? We simply don't see, at least at the moment, hundreds of people coming to believe in Jesus. We go to evangelistic events and we struggle to invite people. Even when they turn up, they seem disinterested. There's a huge gap between what we've heard about in the Bible and what we actually see with our eyes in 2019. If you know a little bit about the history of the church, you'll know that that gap isn't always there. There are times when it seems God is working powerfully. Times in our own country in the past and times actually around the world today. But but Psalm 44 taught us that when things look weak, the response of the Christian is to cry out, awake. It's an extraordinary prayer at the end of it. Awake, O Lord. Arise. To, To cry out to God as if he was sleeping and say, get up and act again. This passage we're looking at in Luke 1 this morning, in many ways, is, it sort of fits with Psalm 44. Luke 1 lays out the kind of faith we're meant to have as believers, the kind of faith that would drive us to prayer, drive us to actually cry out, not half-heartedly, but from the depths of our being, Lord, arise, save people, act again, work again. It's a chapter, I think, that's meant to give us confidence that God can act and show us how faithful believers are meant to respond to God's promises. Now, it's a long chapter. We read, we read the whole, well, almost all the chapter. We're not going to have time to look at all the details. So the big picture of what we're doing this morning is looking and comparing the, the two announcements of these births. Children, did you notice the two people who the angel said were going to be born? Two people were promised. Do you see who they were? The first one was John the Baptist, and the second one was Jesus. John the Baptist and Jesus. 
And the two announcements, in many ways, have lots of similarities. Uh, they're both announced by Gabriel. Uh, uh, Gabriel uh, arrives in the temple to Zechariah, and he arrives at home to, Elizabeth, uh, to Mary. Rather. Both times, the initial response is fear. So you've got Zechariah, the future father of John the Baptist, and Mary, the future mother of Jesus. How do they react? We'll look at verse 12. When Zechariah sees the angel, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Verse 29, when Mary sees Gabriel, she was greatly troubled. Not surprising. In the Bible, uh, angels aren't sort of sweet little babies with, with wings. In the Bible, angels are incredibly impressive beings, powerful beings, uh, who would strike terror into you if you saw them. So unsurprisingly, both Zechariah and Mary tremble when these angels appear. Uh, both times the angel promises uh, a baby is going to be born. Uh, both times the angel gives the name. So in verse 13, the angel said to him, uh, to Zechariah, do not be afraid for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. It's not going to be up to John, so to Zechariah, sorry, and Elizabeth to name John the Baptist. God has sent the name by this angel. And clearly uh, it's the same uh, with Jesus. Uh, the angel says, uh, you shall call his name, verse 31, Jesus. And again, both times a job description is given. Uh, so look down with me to verse 14 and the account of John the Baptist's life. What is John going to do? Well, you'll have joy, Zechariah is told, and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And verse 16, he's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll go before him, that's the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. There's his job description. He's the one to get ready for Jesus. And verse 32 and verse 33, Jesus' job description, well, he's the one who is the saviour. And finally, interestingly, both of them are going to be filled with the Spirit. It seems that John the Baptist is born again before he's born. Look at verse 15. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Before he's born, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. And unsurprisingly, uh, it's the same uh, with the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit, verse 35, will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child is going to be a spirit-filled child. So in many ways, these two accounts look very similar. What that means is that the differences jump out at us. Children, if you've ever seen a spot the difference puzzle, spot the difference puzzles work because the two pictures at first glance look similar. And that's what makes the differences stand out. If the two pictures were completely different, well, there'd be no point in the puzzle. These two accounts are similar, and therefore that draws our attention to the differences. And it's the differences, I think, are key for us this morning. And the primary difference is in the reaction of Zechariah and Mary. Did you notice that as we read through? The difference between Zechariah receiving this message from the Lord via the angel and Mary receiving this message from the Lord via the angel. Let's look at Zechariah first. Look down at verse 18 of chapter 1. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? 
for I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How shall I know this? Zechariah doubts. Prove it, he says to Gabriel. How can I possibly know that this is true? His wife Elizabeth is old. She's past childbearing age. So this angel appears and says, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah says, come on, prove it to me, show me. He won't believe, in other words, God's word. He won't take God's word sent by this messenger, this angel, just on trust. He wants proof. And the angel, Gabriel, well, he tells him off, verse 19, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So he's saying, you're doubting me, the angel Gabriel? I stand in God's presence day by day. God sent me to you with his word, and you're doubting me? You're asking me for proof? And so, Zechariah is disciplined. Behold, verse 20, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words. There's a problem. Zechariah did not believe the word of the Lord. Zechariah doubted God's word. Now, in some ways, that's an encouragement to us. Zechariah is a godly man. Did you notice that? Verse 6, how he's described. Both Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, verse 6, are righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, Luke's not saying they're sinless. There's no one who's sinless other than Jesus. But these guys were were believers. They, they, They trusted the gospel that had been revealed to them so far, and they were living basically obedient lives. And yet... Zechariah still doubted. There's a sort of perverse comfort, if I can call it that, in that, isn't there? Believers, real Christians on the way to heaven, still doubt. We struggle, we, we hear things, we read them in God's word, and yet something at the back of our mind just seems to say, really? Is that really true? Is it really worth staking my life on? Is it really worth taking risks that rely on God's word being true? We all struggle with doubt. Uh, That's in part why this gospel was written. Uh, The first four verses of Luke's gospel are a bit like an introduction. Luke is writing to this guy Theophilus, who's some sort of Roman official, and he tells him why he's written it. Uh, Verse four, uh, overall, the idea is that Theophilus will have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. Theophilus has heard the gospel. He's been taught about Jesus, but Luke wants him to be sure and certain, not to doubt and waver. It's something we all struggle with. But look in contrast at Mary. Uh, She hears extraordinary news. Extraordinary things are going to happen to her. Verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary accepts it. Zechariah says, Prove it. Mary trusts, let it be to me according to your word. Now, it's true that in verse 34, she has asked a question. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? But the fact that she doesn't get told off for it, and even just the way she phrases the question, I think shows us that she's not doubting like Zechariah did. She doesn't say prove it. She asks how it's going to work. Zechariah asks, how can I know this is true? 
But Mary says, how's this going to work? She's just been told she's going to have a baby. And she's a virgin. So she asks a fairly sensible question. Okay, how is it going to work? How is this happening? She's not doubting. That's proved in part by the fact that Gabriel just answers the question normally. He doesn't say, look, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. How dare you doubt me? Overall, her response is one of faith. She's been given an extraordinary, what we might say an almost unbelievable message. But she receives it with faith. Look at verse 37. Key verse. Nothing, says Gabriel, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. If God says something is going to happen, it will happen. However unlikely it looks to our eyes, we ought to be reassured by our ears. Christianity supremely is the religion of the ear, not the eye. That's why, by the way, if, if you're somebody who's sceptical about the Christian faith, don't examine it with, with your eyes. Okay? No one is saying, no one is claiming, for example, that nowadays we can do the same miracles as Jesus could do. Uh, no one is saying that we can raise the dead, that we can walk on water, that we can feed 5,000 people with, with loaves and fish. No, for now, for his own good reasons, God has decided that he's going to speak to the world, not through the kind of spectacular and the miraculous, but through the normal, ordinary human beings passing on the message of Jesus. That's how Christianity has spread across the world, from Jerusalem with a dozen disciples through to well, every country and continent, almost every language group on the earth. It is spread not by the spectacular, the extraordinary, the miraculous, but it's spread by the ordinary, just ordinary men and women telling other ordinary men and women what God has done. That is God's way of revealing himself. And the call for the Christian is to believe, verse 37, nothing will be impossible with God. And startlingly, Mary believes it. Mary takes that. It's harder for her than Zechariah. There are other differences between the two accounts. Zechariah is promised an improbable birth. Mary is promised a, well, an impossible birth. Zechariah is old, his wife is past childbearing age, as we've seen, verse 18. That's improbable. But Mary's a virgin. I mean, that's impossible, humanly speaking. In the Old Testament, there are stories, aren't there, of elderly women giving birth. Think about Abraham and his wife, Sarah. She's 90 when she gives birth. I think about Samuel's mother, Hannah, barren, but prays, and then God miraculously gives her a child. Think about Samson's mother, again, no child, but prays, and miraculously, she gives birth. But in each case, the, the father's involved. They're improbable, but not, humanly speaking, impossible. Mary is being asked to believe something that is, humanly speaking, impossible, a virgin giving birth. It's worth saying, too, again, if you're sceptical about the Christian faith, people, even in the first century, know that virgins can't give birth. Okay, they're not so gullible that, that when Mary turns up and says, oh, I'm pregnant, and by the way, it's God's child, I'm still a virgin, that they all say, oh, yeah, yeah fair, fair enough. An improbable birth versus an impossible birth and what they're promised is also different. An improbable messenger, in Zechariah's case, versus an impossible Messiah. We've seen already in verses 16 and 17 that the John the Baptist's role is essentially to be a prophet. He's told that he's going to be like Elijah, or rather his father is told. He's going to be like Elijah from the Old Testament. And that would be highly improbable. At this stage in the story, 
there had been no prophets from God for about 400 years. The Old Testament closed with Malachi, the last of, of the prophets, and then silence. Now just cast your mind back 400, what was going on in England 400 years ago, roughly? And we were talking like gunpowder plots, the Armada, we're not too long after Henry VIII, Elizabeth I. That is an incredibly long time ago. Imagine if we had been told that we are God's special people. Okay, now the British are not God's special people. But imagine if, imagine if we had been told that, uh, as the Israelites were. And imagine if we'd heard stories that God spent special men, and occasionally women too, to, to us as his people, who, who would proclaim his word, who would speak directly for him. And then imagine if we hadn't heard anything since 1600. Well, you can understand, you'd be doubtful of the truth of those stories. You can understand why Zechariah might just hesitate to believe that his son is going to be the next of those prophets. But how more unlikely was the message preached to Mary? We're not told lots about her, but she is essentially a nobody. She lives in a nowhere town, and she is told she's going to give birth to the son of the the, well, the Son of God Most High. Verse 32, your son will be great, will be called, called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. I find the grimmest housing block in the grimmest corner of Leeds. I find the flat tucked away at the back with broken windows and a door hanging half off its hinges. I find a teenager cooking a three-week-old can of baked beans over a half-broken hob, and then imagine an angel appearing and saying, you're going to give birth to the Son of God who's going to rule the world. That is the level of unlikely we're talking here for Mary. Again, no king for 400 years. There was another king in place. Herod was on the throne. He wasn't a descendant of, of David. He wasn't a proper Jew. He was an Edomite, a kind of half-Jew. Uh, there was no probability at all that Mary's kid would amount to anything and yet here she was being told that he would be God's son and also the king to rule the earth little Mary in Noahville the mother of God's Messiah and yet despite the fact that one is improbable and one is basically impossible Mary believes and Mary believes specifically that God will bring his son into the world miraculously Mary believed that God would bring his son into the world miraculously. She believed not on the count of anything she'd seen, but on what she'd heard. And that's where the jump to Mary and us suddenly becomes smaller. Okay, we're not going to be the parents of the Messiah, very obviously. We're not going to have an angel appear to us and tell us, well, anything. That's pretty unlikely anyway. But we are in a similar position here in this way, that we too have been told via an angel, that God's son will one day miraculously come into this world. Keep your finger in Luke 1, but flick over to the beginning of Acts, the book of Acts. We've got the three Gospels after Luke, sorry, one Gospel after Luke, <laughs> and then Acts. And Acts is written by Luke. It's page 909. And in the very first book of the book, very first verse, rather, of the book of Acts, we meet Theophilus again. So Acts 1 and verse 1, 
in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit. So that's my first book. He's talking about his gospel there. So the same guy, Luke, is writing to the same recipient, Theophilus. And what do we have at the beginning of the story? Well, we won't read all of, of Acts 1, but we see Jesus heading off back to heaven. And verse 10, the disciples, verse 10, they, the disciples, while they were gazing into heaven as Jesus went up, behold, two men stood behind them, so stood by them, sorry, in white robes, and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Do you see the similarities? There's an angel again, two of them this time. And the angels announce Jesus is going to enter his world. Not this time as a baby, he's already done that. This time he's going to return one day on the clouds of heaven. Uh, yes, he's gone up, but he will return. And the rest of the New Testament unpacks what that return will look like. But do you see the, the basic point? You've got the same setup. Angels appearing at the beginning of a book written by Luke to Theophilus to say that Christ is going to come miraculously into the world. And what's the evidence we have for it nowadays? We simply have his word. That's it. And it doesn't look likely at times, does it? Nothing that your eyes see between now and Christ returning are going to give you any evidence, really, that he's about to come. Get the most powerful telescope, children, and you couldn't see into heaven. Okay, if you could scan the universe, you wouldn't find him. He's there somewhere. He's physical, he's real, he's there somewhere, but we're not going to find him. And yet the word of the angel is, he will return. And it seems impossible, but nothing is impossible with God. So let me ask you, are you living your life in light of the fact that he will return? Are you saying with Zechariah, well, how can that work? Come on, God, can that really be the case? Or will you stand with Mary and say, yes, Lord, may it be as you say, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. It's very easy to live a life, isn't it, that, that keeps Jesus in the back pocket as a kind of get out of jail free card, like a monopoly. If you get sent to jail, you can whip out the card. There we go. But actually, the, the fact that he's returning one day, the fact that history is going somewhere, the fact that my life is going somewhere, well, it doesn't make a huge difference. I, I, I live the same way as I would have done if Jesus wasn't coming back. But I know that thankfully I've trusted him. So if it turns out he does, then I'm all right. It is unlikely that God's word has promised it. But even between then, even between then, the call for Christians is to believe that God can do the impossible. Impossible there meaning impossible to our human eyes. This, this phrase about God being able to do the impossible comes up once more in Luke's gospel. And we're going to close there. Look, come with me to Luke 18. Luke 18. That's uh, page 877. Luke 18. Uh, Luke 18 is the story of this, this rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, look, what can I do to, to get saved? What can I do to inherit eternal life? 
He recognizes Jesus as a teacher and he says, look, I, I want to be on the right side. I want to go to heaven. Tell me what I must do. There's a conversation back and forth between him and Jesus. And Jesus is trying to expose that he can't do anything. It's the wrong question. Just come to God and say, look, tell me what to do that I can earn my way into heaven. It's just the wrong question. You can't do anything. The only way you'll get to heaven is by receiving it as a gift, asking for forgiveness and receiving freely that gift of eternal life. And so this conversation goes back and forward. And eventually he walks away, verse 23. When this young man heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He wouldn't give up his riches. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, children, can you get a camel through the eye of a needle? No, you can't. Not a hope. What's Jesus saying? He's saying it's impossible, humanly speaking, for a rich person to be saved. He's not having a go at the rich. He's just saying that, that actually none of us can save ourselves, really. That none of us are capable of living wholeheartedly for God, for this man he wanted to live for his riches. For other of us, well, we live for our career or our family. Whatever it might be, we don't live for God. And the disciples are, are just gobsmacked. Verse 26, those who, who heard it said, look, well, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What is impossible with man is possible with God. You see that? contrast again impossible with man but possible with God it's the only time in Luke's gospel that this this phrase about God being able to do all things God being able to do the impossible comes up and and here it's not about Jesus returning at the end of time but if you like Jesus coming into individuals lives and bringing them into the kingdom Jesus coming into our own hearts to use that expression it is impossible it seems for any man, woman, or child to become a follower of Christ because we don't have the resources within ourselves. But it is possible for God to save anyone. It's impossible for us because it requires a supernatural work. Just as Jesus coming into the world the first time required a supernatural work, just as him returning at the end of time will require a supernatural work. He'll come out of heaven riding on the clouds. That's not a normal thing. Well, so too, every single individual who becomes a Christian in between his first coming and his second coming does so because of a supernatural work of God. God does something impossible. Therefore, our call as those who are ambassadors for Christ between his first and second coming is to believe that God can do the impossible in the life of men and women, in Leeds, in our families, in our businesses, in our neighbourhoods, and bring them to Christ. It won't look likely. Think about your neighbour. Think about the person you sit next to at work. Does it look likely that they're about to become Christians? Does it look, frankly, possible? I think most of us with Zechariah would say no. I think about my family members. I've been praying for someone for years, decades actually. Does it look likely that they're about to turn to Christ? Honestly? I'm with Zechariah. How's that going to happen? But God says with him, all things are possible. So let's not restrict our prayers simply to the possible or the likely. We don't want to pray like Zechariah, as it were. We want to pray like Mary. With you, all things are possible. Let it be. Let's not restrict our evangelism to the likely. 
but rather to the impossible. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. The fact that you're a Christian, if you're a Christian here this morning, is itself a miracle. It didn't happen naturally. It didn't happen because you were bright enough to see the truth or holy enough to understand. It happened because God was good and sent his spirit to give you that supernatural new birth. Now, you and I know that there's no promises to every individual in the world. I don't know whether every one of my family will become Christians. But I do know my call is to pray for everybody, even the seemingly impossible. I do know my call is to, to preach, to teach the gospel to everybody who'll listen, even the seemingly impossible. So at a time when it looks like we live in a Psalm 44 world, it looks like God is absent, it looks like God has gone to sleep, the call for the Christian isn't just to say, well, hey, there we go, times are rough. What do we do, eh? And sort of hunker down in our bunker. But the call is to keep going, to believe that God can do the impossible. It's up to him how and when he acts. But it's up to us, like faithful soldiers, to set our stations, praying and preaching, and trusting that God can do the impossible. After all, that's how God works. He never looks like he's working in power. When God was working most powerfully on earth... What would we have seen? We would have seen a 33-year-old naked Jewish man nailed to a rough tree on a hill outside Jerusalem. It would have looked incredibly, incredibly weak. You'd have had no idea looking at it that that was how God was to save the world. And yet in that crucifixion of a suffocating, bleeding, dying Jewish man, was salvation of the world, was your salvation. Supernaturally, God was working through the death of his son, who looked anything like the son of God, to rescue what countless billions, filling heaven through that moment on the cross. Therefore, the mission of the church looks like the mission of our master. It looks weak. It looks powerless. But it is impossibly true. And by faith, we're to stand with Mary and said, with you, all things are possible. And then leave the results to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you. We praise you that all things are possible with you. Uh, We know that we are weak, we are helpless, we are powerless. Uh, We feel outgunned by the world around us. We long for things to happen that we know are far beyond our control. Uh, There are people we long to see come to know your grace and forgiveness and love and we just can't make it happen and so we pray in your mercy that first of all you'd fill us with the with faith that stands with mary and says with you all things are possible and we pray that you'd make us prayerful people even when it seems that humanly speaking the cause is lost might we know that you are a god of the supernatural and we pray in your mercy that you would again arise and awake And bring many, many people into Christ's kingdom in this city of Leeds and across our nation. Father, awake again and through our weakness, rescue. And we ask it not for our comfort and certainly not for our glory, but for the name of Jesus. And therefore we ask it in his name too. Amen.